Chapter 12 of the Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Ecclesiastical Titles Bill. Mr. Gladstone came out of one controversy into another. The excitement caused by the publication of his letters to Lord Aberdeen was thrown into the shade for the time by the passionate controversy in England on what was called the papal aggression. The then Pope, Pius IX, had made up his mind to give local titles to the Catholic archbishops and bishops in England. Ever since the days of the great Oxford movement, led by John Henry Newman, secessions had been going on among a certain class of devout and intellectual men from the Anglican Church to the Church of Rome. The Pope and his advisers might not unnaturally have been led into the belief that this movement indicated a tendency on the part of the whole people of England to become reunited with the ancient Church. As a matter of fact, the movement, as I have said, concerned only certain classes of pious, educated, and intellectual men. The whole vast bulk of the middle and lower classes of England had absolutely nothing to do with it, and cared nothing about it. A very large, far too large proportion of the English lower middle and working class have little or no interest in religion of any kind. But the Pope and his advisers mistook the significance of the Oxford movement, as it is called, and thought it meant something like a national upheaval. At any rate, the course taken by the Pope does not seem to us anything very formidable or stringent. Pius IX issued a papal bull directing the establishment in England of a hierarchy of bishops, deriving their titles from their actual sees. The bishops and archbishops were there already and were recognized and protected by the state, only they were called bishops of Mesopotamia or of Meliopotamus or of Amaus or what not in partibus infidelium. The Pope's bull simply ordered them to call themselves archbishops or bishops of whatever division of England they happened to reside in. The first archbishop appointed was Cardinal Wiseman, who now became Archbishop of Westminster. The cardinal had been for ten years living quietly in England under the title of Bishop of Melipotamus. It is hard at this distance of time to get one's self back to any clear understanding of the mood of mind which made any Protestant care a straw whether Cardinal Wiseman was called Archbishop of Westminster or Bishop of Melipotamus. To make the whole agitation still more difficult to understand, the Catholic archbishops and bishops in Ireland always called themselves by their local titles, Archbishop of Dublin, Archbishop of Tuam, and so on, and nobody made the slightest objection. But the truth probably is that the Pope's bull was issued at an unlucky time, so far as regarded the tempers of Englishmen, 
coming as it did just in the wake of the Oxford movement, which much dismayed and offended the ordinary Englishman. It was taken as an evidence that the Pope thought that he had a right now to annex the whole of England to the Papal Church. Anyhow, a fury of anti-Catholic passion flamed over the greater part of England. Men, usually calm and sensible, lost their heads over the affair. There were riots here, there, and everywhere. Roman Catholic churches in many towns were attacked and broken into. Protestant mobs were encountered by Roman Catholic mobs, and a perfect saturnalia of disorder in speech and action prevailed throughout the kingdom. Lord Palmerston looked the matter very quietly in the face. He did not attempt to conceal in private letters his contempt for the whole anti-papal agitation, but like a cool man of business, he saw that something would have to be done to satisfy the public clamor. The Queen herself, in a letter to her aunt, the Duchess of Gloucester, expressed her deep regret at the unchristian and intolerant spirit exhibited by many people at the public meetings. I cannot bear, she wrote, to hear the violent abuse of the Catholic religion which is so painful and so cruel toward the many good and innocent Roman Catholics. However, something had to be done, and I need hardly say that useful legislation seldom is the result of the vague conviction that something has to be done. Lord John Russell was then Prime Minister, and he brought in a bill prohibiting under penalty the use of a title taken by a Catholic bishop from any see in England, or indeed from any place whatever in Great Britain, and rendering void all acts done by or bequests made to persons under such titles. Probably never before in modern times has a measure been carried in the face of so powerful and intellectual an opposition. Our chief interest in it now attaches to Mr. Gladstone's part in the long debates on the measure. It may fairly be said that then, for the first time, Mr. Gladstone assumed the position of a great parliamentary leader. He led the opposition to the bill simply as a question of public liberty. He contended that if you tolerate the Roman Catholic faith at all, you are compelled to allow it the use of whatever forms and names and titles it thinks fit to adopt. Men like Mr. Cobden, Mr. Bright, Sir James Graham, Mr. Roebuck followed with enthusiasm the leadership of Mr. Gladstone. Protestant public men so intensely devoted to the interest of their church as Mr. Roundell Palmer, afterwards Lord Selborne, and Mr. Beresford Hope stood resolutely by Mr. Gladstone's side. Mr. Disraeli scoffed at the bill, although he declared that he would not take the trouble to oppose its introduction, but his language of contempt was as strong as that of Mr. Bright or Mr. Roebuck. On the other hand, some of the extreme Protestants, like Sir Robert Inglis, found fault with the bill on the ground 
that it did not go half far enough in its stringency. It would not be too much to say that except for Lord John Russell alone, the whole intellect of Parliament was strongly against the bill. Yet the measure was carried by an immense majority. Something had to be done to satisfy popular outcry. Lord Palmerston made the whole matter clear in one of his letters since published. We must, he said, bring in a measure. The country would not be satisfied without some legislative enactment. We shall make it as gentle as possible. It proved in its application to be very gentle indeed. In fact, no attempt whatever was made to put it into practice. Cardinal Wiseman still called himself Archbishop of Westminster, and no one took any steps to prevent him from so doing. The strange popular outcry was satisfied, and it soon cried itself to sleep. Every thinking man saw, meanwhile, that out of those debates on the Ecclesiastical Titles Bill, Mr. Gladstone had emerged a great parliamentary leader. The most brilliant and impressive speeches he had ever made up to that time were delivered in opposition to Lord John Russell's measure. It has been said that Mr. Gladstone had decided leanings toward the Roman Catholic Church. No doubt, a church so venerable with so picturesque and artistic a ritual, a church in whose bosom, as Thackeray put it, so many generations of saints and sages have rested, could not but appeal to all that was poetic and all that was devotional in Mr. Gladstone's nature. But I do not believe that he had any sympathy with the especial doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. It was at one time assumed by many that Mr. Gladstone was likely to be swept away by the Newman movement into Catholicism. I have, however, spoken with men who were contemporaries of Mr. Gladstone at Oxford, who had themselves since become Roman Catholics, and who told me they never saw reason to believe that Mr. Gladstone was likely to join the Church of Rome. The whole controversy about the Ecclesiastical Titles Bill was with him only a question between genuine liberty and petty persecution. Nothing seems to me to be more honorable in the career of a public man than the part that Mr. Gladstone took in all those long and fierce debates. Twenty years after, Mr. Gladstone had the satisfaction of quietly repealing the Ecclesiastical Titles Bill, which he had so earnestly and generously opposed. We have no great concern now with the details of the struggles between governments and parties in the far-off days of the Ecclesiastical Titles Bill. The one direct interest, however, which we still have in those struggles is the fact that they pushed to the front two men who were destined to be almost lifelong antagonists. I speak, it need hardly be said, of Mr. Gladstone and Mr. Disraeli. Lord John Russell's government was crumbling away, and after a number of defeats, none of which was in itself of capital importance, Lord John Russell thought it necessary that he and his colleagues should resign. Lord Stanley was invited to form a new administration, 
and so little certain was it even then whether Mr. Gladstone had or had not severed himself from his old Tory associations that Lord Stanley, according to a rumor which everyone believed, offered to Mr. Gladstone a place in the Conservative government with the office of Foreign Secretary. Lord Stanley, however, vainly attempted to form an administration. Lord Aberdeen was then invited to try his hand, and he too could not see his way to success. There was actually nothing to be done but for Lord John Russell and his colleagues to return to office. A government thus set up again by sheer necessity, and because there was no other set of men who would take the responsibility, never could be anything but a failure in England. Lord Palmerston did his best to make the failure complete. He was a most independent, and to use a modern slang word, pushful foreign secretary. He did exactly what he liked without consulting anybody. He had acted repeatedly in defiance of Lord John Russell's warnings and in defiance even of protests from the Queen herself. But he carried the joke a little too far when he expressed to Count Walewski, the French ambassador in London, his entire approval of Louis Napoleon's coup d'etat of the 2nd of December, 1851. Lord Palmerston was actually dismissed from office the last time, so far as my memory serves me, that such an event occurred in English history. Nothing, however, could daunt or dishearten Lord Palmerston. He was up to the front again after this tremendous blow, smiling as if nothing particular had happened. Within a very short time he managed, with the Tories to help him, to defeat Lord John Russell on a measure that has now no historical importance other than in the fact. Lord John Russell went out of office and was succeeded by Lord Stanley, who had now on his father's death become Earl of Derby, with Mr. Disraeli as Chancellor of the Exchequer and Leader of the House of Commons. This was Mr. Disraeli's first appearance as a Minister of the Crown. People in general were greatly amused at the notion of Vivian Gray becoming a cabinet minister, Sidonia accepted as a British statesman, Coningsby undertaking the responsibility of Chancellor of the Exchequer. Disraeli's first budget, however, was not a badly managed piece of business, all things considered. The only object was to carry the government decently over the session. Then there came a dissolution and Mr. Gladstone was again elected for Oxford with a greatly increased majority. The results of the general election did not materially affect the balance of parties, and the government of Lord Derby returned to office. Mr. Disraeli now had to make an attempt at a real working budget, and he certainly did not succeed in the effort. Mr. Gladstone stopped the way. End of chapter 12